Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Welcome to the next episode of TraumaCast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. I'm Lauren Dudas, an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University. This month's TraumaCast is brought to you as a joint effort between this committee and the newly organized Rural Trauma Committee. After a lot of positive feedback about our three-part series about rural trauma, two of which were published last year, we're here today to discuss rural emergency general surgery. Though the concepts are the same, the route to the endpoint may be different or more challenging. Our guests are from all over the country, including a tiny island in the Pacific. Without further delay, here's my co-moderator, followed by introduction of our amazing guests. I'm Mike Radomsky. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon in Columbus, Ohio at Grant Medical Center. I'm Kristen Colling. I'm a trauma and acute care surgeon in Duluth, Minnesota. I am Keelan Roach. I'm an assistant professor, a trauma acute care surgeon at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee. I'm uh, Nick Bandy. I'm currently working as an acute care surgeon in Guam, part of a family move due to my wife's military service. As our first question, we wanted you guys to tell us a little about where you practice now and what your training was before and what made you decide to make that move into being a rural provider. I trained in uh, New York City at Mount Sinai is where I did my general surgery training. And then I did my fellowship in trauma surgery at Vanderbilt um, in Nashville. And so very much not at all rural environments. And so when I was looking for a position, had a number of opportunities, stay in more urban environments or this opportunity for rural. And um, I really liked the option to help build this trauma center specifically. So we recently became one of the only level ones in this region serving 1.2 million people. We cover 29 counties, 21 hospitals in our region. And so a big provider, not only of trauma care, but emergency general surgery care as well. And so this uh, opportunity offered me the ability to build an acute care service that had never been here before, which I really liked. Um, I'd been a part of some really great institutions that do amazing things, but had never had the opportunity to build anything. So that's why I decided to come to a rural environment. So I uh, did my training with general surgery and trauma at EVMS in Norfolk, Virginia. I stayed on board as faculty and, and planned to stay kind of in the urban trauma setting. But then my family situation changed and we got orders to Guam. So I came out here and started working uh, as an employed surgeon for a hospital. We were able to recruit another surgeon and launch a formal emergency general surgery service, which has been um, really fun to see that develop. And then since then, we've been trying to kind of expand more areas and, you know, kind of, we'll think we'll talk about later today, take over some of our gastrointestinal issues and even working a little bit in the ICU to help out with that team as well. All right, Kristen, how about you? 
So I had a interesting residency in that I started out in New York as well. I was at Cornell and did my first three years there and then had two years of research that I did at the University of Minnesota doing trauma, shock, uh, basic science research. And then due to family circumstances, I ended up staying in Minnesota. So I graduated from the University of Minnesota and that's where I did my trauma and critical care fellowship. So again, pretty heavy on urban, large ICUs, many, 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 many specialties subdividing all the care. And when I was looking for jobs after my fellowship, really wanted to have the breadth of surgery, trauma, and critical care where we would get to do a lot of different things. Found a perfect job up in Duluth. So it's also a new level one trauma center serving really a big hole of trauma care in Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, and Western Michigan. Again, it's very similar to Keelan. The surrounding area just does not have much general surgery service. So we get massive amount of referrals from a really wide range of areas, some of which have just no, even just access to care. And so that's been really rewarding. And that was sort of what I wanted was a a opportunity to have sort of a community practice while still doing trauma and critical care. Keelan, Kristen, you, these were your first jobs right out of fellowship. Is that correct? Yes, it was my first job. (laughs) Was there a lot of intimidation or anything that you felt? I mean, going from a university setting where you have all of these resources to now going to a a facility where you might not have those resources, how did you handle that? Um, So it's a good question. And it's something that I'm kind of still learning. You know, I'm only about two years into practice. There were things I didn't realize I wouldn't have, you know, ERCP capability anytime, any day, any hour, not an option at all. Specialists in terms of plastic surgeons, surgical oncologists, things that I didn't think I would have to think about. I thankfully have a really wonderful uh, group of partners that have been in this field for a long time. And so I am able to run a lot of things by them and having the resources from having trained at, you know, Vanderbilt and Sinai and places like that to be able to bounce ideas off of people has been very, very helpful also. I agree with Keelan. I think this is one of those jobs that you need to have really good partners for. I think anywhere where you're starting, you know, your first job, having partners that you're willing to help and you can, who you can bounce ideas off without feeling you know, any stress or strain. And I think I'm now in my fourth year of practice and we've hired a couple new surgeons since I've started. And that's been, you know, I think it really is such a testament to a good group is having people that you can call in and say, this is a weird case. Can I run it by you? What do you think? Will you help? And, and that I think makes all the surgery care impressive. Having partners and people to ask for help is really important. So can you guys tell us a little bit about your practice? How much emergency trauma or general surgery coverage you provide? And do you have an elective practice? And Kristen, you hinted at it, but how many partners you have or what are the resources you have in your hospitals? So up in Duluth, we are a level one trauma center. We have, oh God, I think seven partners now. We do a third of trauma, a third of EGS, and then a third of critical care, um, where we cover all of the surgical critical care and trauma critical care. We do a shift schedule. So we have three surgeons on during the day and one at night. And we do about 16 shifts a month, plus or minus a couple, depending on the month. We very rarely do elective cases. We will sometimes 
bring back people that had hernias that we operated on or, you know, interval appies or elective cholecystectomies, but it's quite rare. We have a general surgery team that does that in our, in our hospital. And it makes it so that there's, you know, again, a bit more of a work life balance, which I think is helpful. So in our model, we have two surgeons, uh, myself and then my partner, she actually came from the MIS background. So she doesn't do any ICU care. I do a few shifts in the ICU every now and then, but we basically, we do pretty much everything when we're on, we'll work, you know, four to seven days in a row. So we basically split the months and kind of vary from month to month, depending on how we need to make our schedules work. You see clinic in the afternoons, we do elective cases, and then we do all the, you know, emergency general surgery. And we don't thankfully get a lot of trauma here. We're in a pretty small area and we don't really have a lot of capability to import patients from, from elsewhere being so isolated, but we do take care of that as well. I'd say our elective practice is very highly skewed to screening colonoscopies. Um, but we also do get some hernias and that kind of stuff. There are a lot of private practice general surgeons in the community already. And so I think they have a little bit more of the referral network already built in uh, relationships, but we're always trying to expand that as well. We are a level one academic center and we cover hundred percent of the trauma and surgical critical care at the hospital. Um, there's eight of us total, myself and my partners. Um, and then we cover now about a half of the emergency general surgery. When I started, we covered about eight days a month. And now we, we cover about half the month of the emergency general surgery. And then that's shared with some private surgeons in the community. Given that our emergency general surgery is growing, we have more elective cases that are coming up, you know, based upon having seen gallbladders overnight or, you know, people with hernias that go home from the ER. So we're just starting to build that and see what that looks like. We aren't elective surgeons on purpose. And so we're trying to figure out how we want to incorporate that into our schedule. This question would be a little bit more pointed to Nick and Kristen. Being at more a more remote facility, do you have transfer agreements with larger hospitals for things that you're unable to handle because of your institutional size? It all depends on the payers. So all of our evacuations are, are flights. Um, if patients have military associated insurance, it goes fairly smoothly. Some patients don't have any insurance. Some patients aren't U.S. citizens. And to be frank, we don't really have much success in the urgent transfer world. Um, I think mm -hmm. the quickest I've seen has been a couple of weeks. And that's, wow. I mean, we've sat on, there's been patients that get admitted and medically managed with a, you know, aortic dissections and we just optimize them and they go a while later. And that's, that's about as quick as we can go. Wow. Your limitations are certainly an outlier being kind of stranded in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, you really are on 10 Island. <laughs> How about you, Kristen? So we're actually the referral center for all of those uh, outlying places. We are a tertiary center. I mean, the things we don't have would be transplant and ECMO. We can cannulate, but we don't do that. So those we send down to the city, the Twin Cities. Otherwise, we we do have actually really clear transfer agreements, though, from all of our referring hospitals. Again, just because of how small and how far away all of them are, you can't be doing this like, oh, well, maybe we'll help you. Maybe you'll have somewhere to send this trauma patient or this emergency surgery patient. We do have standing agreements with really all of the probably 25 uh, outlying hospitals and pretty much have a we don't say no policy. 
So I think now we're gonna change the conversation a little bit and talk about some specific clinical situations. And I appreciate uh, you guys on the Emergency General Surgery Committee because some of these ideas came from your committee. But the first one we wanted to talk about was necrotizing soft tissue infections. When do you decide who to have stay at those smaller hospitals and who to transfer? And how do you kind of make that agreement with that other facility? So we have a, a, a lot of patients that get transferred with necrotizing soft tissue infections. And I think it was a really big change from when I worked in, you know, more urban areas where they were being referred from other surgeons, where it was the expectation that hopefully they were debriefing them at the, at the outlying hospital and then transferring them to us if they needed further critical care. In the area that we're receiving transfers from, again, most of the time they don't have general surgeons, so it would be an ER physician or a family practice physician working in the emergency department. Um, that's asking to transfer them. The few places that do have general surgeons often don't have anesthesia in the middle of the night or even in, you know, after 4 p.m. And so it it isn't very feasible to expect them to do it. If they can, uh, our gen the general surgeons at the referring hospitals have done debridements, but most of the time we have them just send them to us and send them if they can come by ground quick enough, otherwise we do have a helicopter and flight system as well, because quite a few of our transfers are from four plus hours away. And so those do often get flown because they just don't ha either have the time or the ambulances, you know? I mean, I think one of the things that I was just so struck by working in more of a rural area is the, you know, you can say that person doesn't need to be flown, but if they use a ground transfer, they are then using their one ambulance to get them to my hospital. And that is obviously less than ideal for all the people that are in that community. And so I think I think the thing that I've learned the most in my last four years with, with necrotizing infections and really all of the any emergency surgery is when they're asking for help, accept them and get them here as quickly and safely as you can. Be kind to the referring hospitals because they aren't trying <laughs> to just pass off these patients. They These patients need the care that, that can't be given at these smaller hospitals. I'm very similarly, you know, most of our referring hospitals are, are not much more than just kind of a freestanding emergency room in a lot of ways. So they don't have the capability to do surgical debridements and things that the patients need. So for all of our traumas, we're not auto accept just yet because we're still growing, but like basically auto accept, you know, we take anything. And so similarly, as we grow our emergency general surgery service, it's a similar answer here to help send just your complicated patients and happy to, to do what we can. That issue of patients coming and using the only ambulance available to the vicinity was something completely new and foreign to me. I had a patient arrive had, who had been told to come by POV and I was shocked, you know, they were a sick patient. And what I found out was that it was either they came by POV or they took the only ambulance for the surrounding area for the next six hours. And so issues like that, I'd never seen before, before being in a rural area. I will also point out that even if your hospital, your referring hospital has a general and an anesthesiologist available, these patients that need serial debridements can seriously, seriously strain a small hospital's OR. And it's not just the surgeon, you know, being quote unquote lazy or, or whatever. I mean, it's the OR staff, the techs, the nurses, even the basic supplies. We've had some bad necrotizing soft tissue infections where we run out of back sponges for doing serial changes and that kind of thing. And so it's really hard to know 
exactly what that sending hospital, I would just kind of err on the side of if they say they need to send the patient, there's probably a good reason for that beyond just personality or lack of work ethic or anything bad like that. It really can overwhelm an entire system very easily if the patient has to go to the OR a few times. So one of the ways that we've found to deal with the possible delays, right, if they aren't being debrided when they first present, is when they get to our hospital, we just have an agreement with our OR that any necrotizing soft tissue infection is a class A, and we are in the operating room within 30 minutes. And so I think that does help at least somewhat uh, balance the necessary need to delay debridement to get them to, to our facility for the surgery, but that then, you know, we're expediting it as much as we can to balance that. And I think that's been helpful. I think also just making sure that you communicate what you want for antibiotics and things before the patient's transferred and making sure that the appropriate resuscitation can be done while they're being transferred is important. Similarly, I've had to have conversations with the outside facility about what do you have, you know, what can you give them before they come? I know we talked about that in the, you know, rural trauma world of finding out what kind of blood and things people have outside, but um, knowing what the outside facility has available is important. Do you find that when you are communicating with the outside facility, you're talking to a surgeon or are you talking most often to an emergency room physician? Emergency room physician. Almost always an emergency room physician or, or uh, advanced practice provider. We do have some uh, surgeons that will refer to us. And um, I think when it's a necrotizing infection, most of the time they've been evaluated by the surgeon, if feasible. And then we do speak just to kind of see if there's a way we can counterbalance the risk benefit of an early debridement at their hospital versus getting them to us. But we happily will just accept from an emergency provider. So the next topic we wanted to talk about was advanced endoscopy and some of the interventions you may not have performed during training that I understand that you guys are doing now. So tell us, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I know personally, this was something that I didn't really put a lot of thought into in training in my, in my year of practice back in an urban environment. And then I very early on when my early call shifts here, I showed up and uh, I remember being in the ER and me and the intensivists were essentially watching this guy bleed to death from varices. And he had such severe hepatic encephalopathy. We do have an interventional radiologist, but he said, oh, he's not a candidate for tips. And you know, we kind of all agreed on that. So we put the, you know, put the balloon in and just temporized him. And we realized we went and talked to our staff and the OR and we didn't have any endoscopic means to control bleeding. We didn't have any bands, we didn't have any clips. And, and that really set off kind of starting a whole protocol for GI bleeding. You know, it was a, you know, one little event that ended up being a very big uh, process. So now we have capabilities and formal protocols for uh, control of bleeding ulcers, control of varices. We have formalized resuscitation protocols, which I think was a pretty big accomplishment in a tiny little hospital. We got buy-in from internal medicine and ICU and the ER and anesthesia teams. And so we went from having nothing to having that. And that being said, the only training I've had for endoscopy was the fundamentals of endoscopic surgery. And I think, you know, it was very uncomfortable the first few times between that and watching videos and reading articles. There's advanced endoscopy at the level of ERCP and fixing fistulas. And then there's kind of quasi advanced endoscopy where you're going in and putting a rubber band on a, you know, a bleeding vessel or a hip clip on a bleeding vessel. And I think that is actually something most general surgeons can easily do. It's not something that people probably want to do if they haven't done it before, but just reading a few articles, watching a few videos, it's really not that hard. And did you spearhead making that whole protocol? 
I pushed for it pretty hard. And then our ER doctors and our ICU, we all kind of all knew it was a need we had just because we had this issue where it was pretty common disease. We have a lot of people with hepatitis in this area and a lot of people with cirrhosis. And we just had a lot of people just bleeding and we didn't have a lot to offer them. And so I think everyone kind of enthusiastically took it up. Obviously, there were a few people on the internal medicine side that are more interested, a few people in the ER, you know, every department had a few people that stepped forward and were very interested in, in that really kind of made a multidisciplinary approach and everyone got really excited about it and the hospital agreed to buy us the supplies, which aren't that expensive. And it's been going on about a year and a half now. So when you do have one of these patients come in, is it is there a select call pool of people that have those set skills or does everybody in your group, well, you and your partner? Well, it was, um, <laughs> so now that there's two of us and we both, we both do it. Um, when I first came here, there were still some community surgeons taking call and they didn't have much interest in it. So they basically would say, yeah, don't call me about GI bleeds. But now that it's just me and, and my partner and we're, we're basically we take every call every day, you know, one of the two of us. So that's made that a lot easier. I just was talking to our intervention radiologist yesterday. And since we fully launched our acute care program, he hasn't had to do a single emergent tips, which I think has been a pretty, pretty nice development here. Um, but when my partner first came here, the first few of these she saw, I just came in and did it with her. And it, it really is not technically challenging. I mean, if, if you can do a colonoscopy, you can do an upper, uh, upper endoscopy and try to at least put some clips on something or band of It's It's not any technically more difficult in my opinion. Can I ask you, Nick, so how did you approach that conversation with the patients or their family about this being, you know, the first time you're doing this and learning it via YouTube? Like, how did I, you? I mean, I pretty, I pretty much just had that exact kind of, and the, the people that live out here are kind of used to that a little bit. You know, we have, there's stories of general surgeons evacuating epidural hematomas in the past before I got here, but now we have neurosurgeons. So you just have an honest conversation. You say, look, if you were in a bigger hospital or in a different country or a different, you know, whatever, this would be done by gastroenterologists. We don't have that. I have some training in endoscopy and this is what we propose to do. And we just kind of go over the risks and benefits. And I haven't had anyone say no to that, but we just have an honest conversation to say, this is not something I would do if we were in California, but you know, this is what we have here. And, and I think we can help you. And I think it's an honest conversation and it seems to have worked out so far. Does, um, does that expertise at all translate to ERCPs and uh, more uh, or less urgent cases? I, I have not tried to tackle that. We'd have to buy the supplies, but I've, I've heard some horror stories in my limited research about people with limited training trying to take on ERCP and some pretty bad injuries. So that's not something I'm going to try. Um, I'm sure there's some general surgeons out there that are capable and do do it regularly, but I think I would, I would prefer to have some formal training before I try to tackle that. Kristen or Keelan, are you doing any advanced endoscopies? No, I will say that I get called for more GI bleeding that is refractory to endoscopy and having to operate on those patients in a way that I did not see much, you know, in a more quaternary center for sure. Cause um, having more aggressive endoscopists who will go get back and back and back, you know, we don't have that, you know, they will go once if they can, and then, then it's surgical. Yeah. We don't do any advanced endoscopy. I try hard not to do any. <laughs> so Keelan, you had said that you don't have access to ERCP. Have you also had to adjust your management of complex biliary disease? 
So we have it to some extent, but we don't have it all the time, you know, as available as I, as I did previously. And actually, so I'm a part of a hospital system. And so there's certain hospitals where GI is more available. And so I've had to send patients to other hospitals just to get ERCPs and things, which being at the level one trauma center is very like (laughs) antithetical to me of the way I like to care for patients. But, you know, sometimes we have to send them to the other hospital to get the ERCP and then bring them back. That's interesting that you send them there and bring them back. How is how was that facilitated? Because we we are the opposite. We we end up getting a lot of patients for an ERCP, have never tried to send them back. Is that pretty common? It happened, not common, but has happened. I've had to deal with it. And basically it's also, we don't have anybody in this area that does EUS. And so dealing with that type of thing and then endoscopic debridement and things like that, again, not an option here. And so we've had to send patients out and then bring them back as well. Again, all these are personal opinions. So certainly if this is something that you partake in, speak up, but Are there certain times where you're talking either to an ER provider or maybe on that rare circumstance where there's a surgeon at another hospital, but discussing if there, you know, we had a resource limitation for the past two years with the pandemic. Certainly there were times when we had to limit our resources. Did you ever have a conversation with the outside hospital about having to decide if that patient should be transferred, if the patient's family actually wanted to undergo surgery or if it was really a resource utilization crunch, if you didn't have the resources and that patient wasn't going to survive, that they actually had to talk to them about not being able to transfer. I've been on the receiving end of that in a, in a burn situation of uh, trying to transfer a patient to a burn center and them telling me, you know, no, we will not take said patient. I have been called about patients that sound futile, certainly on the phone. Uh, Personally, I feel like you know, I, I can't really make that call um, as the telephone provider. And so if somebody feels uncomfortable with something in the outside and they want me to see it, albeit futile, I will take it. We certainly got close to a public health crisis and resource utilization, but we never declared a public health emergency. And so, you know, from a resource utilization standpoint, you know, that was kind of the big cutoff point. Like when we were thinking about ventilator usage and things like that, are we in a public health crisis or not? And we never kind of pulled the trigger with that. And so when I think about resource utilization, that's kind of how I parse it. Um, That's my perspective on it. Our service gets quite a few calls of patients that are, you know, in extremis from, you know, either uh, we have a lot of alcoholic uh, liver failure with then, you know, pancreatitis that's, you know, they're in just extremis in whatever ER they're at. And I would say we almost always accept those, even, even when it does seem like there is not going to be a positive outcome. But I think at least before the pandemic, we really did feel that it's probably better to have them here where we can have the appropriate risk benefit discussions with the family members. I think it's really hard to ask people who aren't critical care and surgical specialists to have those conversations when they don't necessarily have the you know, appropriate data or, you know, just, I think it, it's, that's a tough thing to ask a emergency provider to, to discuss with the family. We do usually ask them to at least broach the, would they want aggressive care and want a surgery? Because if their families knows that they don't want that, then we do try hard to not transfer them. 
with the pandemic, we did get to a point where we had absolutely no ICU beds. The wait list would be for days to get to our ICU. And that I think was a, you know, an interesting and really ethically, you know, difficult time because you are saying, you know, yeah, this patient has a perforated duodenal ulcer and they're sitting at your ER with no ICU beds. What we tried to do when it was truly a surgical emergency was have the conversation with our emergency department as well and see if we can get them to our ER. We also tried to facilitate just with other hospitals in the area that had general surgeons, even if they weren't necessarily the place that they'd usually go where they didn't have an ICU to at least get them, you know, source control. And then Tele ICU through that. Um, uh, luckily, you know, I think I think most of the time it worked well. I think some things grew out of that. You know, the telemedicine and tele ICU with our rural counterparts has been really helpful. I think for a lot of things, but but I do think you know most of the time when there isn't that ICU, you know, severe crunch. If if patients can come to a, a higher level of care, it's it's helpful for families, as long as there's, you know, appropriate discussions beforehand. Nick, how do you approach that kind of conversation? Well, I'm kind of only on the sending end right now. And um, we've had a lot of frustrations and I don't really have a solution. Just kind of, this is almost me a little bit of venting, but a lot of our patients are, are from the Philippines and for a while, regardless of issue, you know, somebody could need, you know, an urgent brain surgery, whatever, somebody could have an MI. And for a while, that country just said, nope, no one's coming here because of COVID. And, and similarly, we had some pretty kind of similar experiences trying to transfer people back towards Hawaii or the West Coast, where people said, at one point in time, the transfer center even said, we're so backed up, I'm not even going to connect you to a physician. And that's when we have the conversation with the families, like, look, we don't have anything we can safely offer you here. We're working our best to transfer you. We're going to continue with supportive care. And we just kind of have that to frame our goals of care discussion. If it's truly something we can't do safely and there's really nowhere for the patient to go, that becomes just kind of a really brutal ethical discussion. And that being said, I think everyone that works in the rural area would try to do whatever is reasonable, but at a certain point, there's certain things we can't fix. And, and that's just the reality of isolation, the reality of COVID, the reality of all these things. But I think the key is just kind of going back to the family and not trying to hide anything and just being very frank about what your capabilities are and why you want to transfer and what your goals are. Patients that are getting transferred where they have a suspected compartment syndrome and never having a, a surgeon evaluate them. That's always one of those things that you get taught in medical school that you know, any surgeon should be able to decompress a compartment. Have any of you had experience with that or how have you handled that? Uh, yeah, we, uh, we've tried to make it pretty standardized in our hospital. Um, just so if the ER suspects it, they call right away. You know, there was some people that were ordering advanced imaging to try to rule out compartment syndrome I wasn't familiar with before I got here. And, and some of our providers like to use the striker needle, some don't, but we've just kind of made it pretty cut and dry with our ER doctors. Like, you know, if you have any suspicion, just call surgeons right away. We've actually short, sort of shifted this more to orthopedics just based on who's available when and, and, and kind of some other behind the scene things. But certainly if orthopedics is not available, general surgery will step in and do the fasciotomies right away. And we have the capability of getting an OR going in about an hour. So we haven't had any recent big misses that I'm aware of. Certainly wouldn't transfer somebody with that. 
about Kristen or Keelan, have you guys had experience where you're getting patients that have a, have a compartment syndrome that uh, probably should have been addressed initially or at the initial hospital? I think most of the time, um, our patients, again, just since they are coming from places where there usually aren't surgeons, most of the time are not getting it fully addressed there. Um, and so that, that does make it harder because I, I think it would be very difficult to talk a ER physician through doing a, <laughs> a compartment. <laughs> uh, and so I think we, we just really, anytime that there's even a question, you know, we, we get them transferred to us quickly and we just are there in the ER when they are, when they arrive and evaluate them quickly. And I think that's kind of the, you know, simplest way it ends up being where I would say way more than half don't have compartment syndrome, but, you know, I think, I think it's still a fair thing to not ask, you know, an ER physician to, and, and again, not even often ER physicians, right? A lot of ours are NPs or PAs or uh, internal medicine doctors just covering the urgent care emergency department of their small hospital. And so I think the way we've, we've dealt with it is just any, any concern and they send it right to us. Yeah, similarly, I mean, a lot of ours are coming from the field too, from a great distance away. And it's not that anybody knows or, or suspects compartment syndrome initially, but it takes them quite a long time to get there. And so then we deal with that once it arrives. Um, but I haven't had the issue of, of someone calling me thinking or saying it was compartment from, you know, six hours away or anything like that. So we talked a little about endoscopy, but are there any other skills or operative interventions that you've had to pick up being in the rural environment that you didn't necessarily practice in training? One that really jumps to my head early is being prepared to do some vascular work, even if that's not quote unquote your job. So you may not be formally putting in AB fistulas, but in the middle of the night, when somebody's got a bleeding fistula or um, something that I've come across a few times, somebody has like a catheter-related brachial artery thrombosis, you may be the only person to call. So I think you really need to be, you know, brush up on these quote-unquote light vascular procedures before you end up taking this job, because you're probably going to be the one getting the phone call, regardless of whether or not it's technically in your job description or not. And I was warned before I got here, I'd have to learn this, is the common duct expiration uh, laparoscopically which I didn't do a single one in all my residency. We had such a good GI group. The first one I tried, uh, I pulled out the coledocoscope and uh, right away noted it was broken. So we, <laughs> and so there's a lot of papers on, on coledocoscopy and a lot of videos, but we've actually come up with a fairly reasonable solution, I think, in our hospital where we pass ureter stents down transystically and then deploy a, a ureter stone basket. We can squirt a little contrast and just kind of see the outline of the stone. And had a fair amount of success with that. Again, not something we I ever wanted to do or probably will want to keep doing long term, but it's actually one of those things. If you're doing, you know, difficult gallbladders and, and cholangiograms, it's not that much more to add on just passing a catheter down. Sometimes you can just pass the catheter and push the stone right through. And then just being aware of your backup options of either formally exploring the duct or just leaving the laparoscopic T-tube has worked for us here locally. We let the T-tube mature and then the interventional radiologist can go through that and fish out any remnant stones. If we had GI three or four hours away, would it be a lot different? Probably, but that being said, if somebody has a single stone sitting there and you can go grab it with a basket and then be done, I think that's a much better solution than mandating an ERCP. 
Video assisted retroperitoneal debridements are something that I did once in training. And so has, has definitely come up as something that have had to try to approach that. And it's not something my partners had any experience with. So like my N of one was <laughs> what we had to work with. We didn't have the size of the drains from our IR, you know, were, were much smaller than, than what we were dealing with outside. So having to kind of figure out, okay, if we put two of those drains right next to each other, then that makes for a large bore drain. And so then you've created the, the pathway that you need. And so kind of working within your environment of what you have. What kind of resources did you use to, or references did you use to become familiar with that or to figure that stuff out? You know, some of the resources from SAGES in terms of, of how to in doing the procedure and then um, contacting people from, you know, my training institutions. Any clinical things you think you can do during chief year to prepare yourself for that? Yeah, you know, I know chief year is already uh, pretty busy, but if we're being honest, there's probably a little bit more free time in your chief year than some of your other years. So I would I would take the time to kind of brush up on some areas you may not be as recently trained in. For example, spend some time with a gastroenterologist if you haven't done that in a while, and maybe have them, you know, watch them do some more advanced scopes, take care of some bleeds, that kind of stuff. Certainly, you know, just like I talked about earlier, go scrub some AV fistulas at the end of your chief year, because even if you're not putting them in, you're going to be taking care of them, at least in some sort of emergency capacity, most likely. You may also need to go spend some time with the gynecologist and the OB service as well, depending on what exactly job you're taking. That may be something you're expected to take care of emergently in the middle of the night. So it, it you know, if you haven't done a, a C-section since your third year of medical school, I would go participate in some of those before you graduate. And then from an administrative standpoint, were there any obstacles you encountered kind of transitioning from the larger institutions to the institutions you're in now? I think whenever you try to import your practice model from a big institution to a small one, there's going to be a lot of speed bumps. Um, you know, I, I think the a very kind of concise way to, to sum it up was like the first time I posted a gallbladder, I showed up to the OR and there's no laparoscopic tower. And the, the OR staff said, well, you didn't tell us you were doing it laparoscopic. And so that's when I kind of realized I was going to have to really shift gears a little bit. And, and in terms of, you know, getting supplies and trying to really get administration to understand that some of these things we need to have a lot of in the storage closet, you know, we can't run out of trocars, we can't run out of endoclips, we can't run out of these things. Um, but thankfully, our administration has been very receptive here. And in the return, we've showed them we're, you know, we're shortening our length of stay, we're getting more cases than laparoscopically instead of open, or all these things, kind of the, the classic benefits of an EGS model. And by us working together, I think we've overcome most of our problems in terms of supplies and, and uh, help and assistance and that kind of stuff. Well, I think the other thing is you really have to understand what you're signing up for. So you're going to get one job description probably from the hospital that's recruiting you or maybe the surgeon you're replacing. But what I found is, is helpful sometimes to actually get a little bit better understanding of what the expectations are is talk to some of the other specialists there. If you can talk to some of the ER doctors, because at three in the morning, they're ultimately going to be the ones deciding who to call. So while you may not be the person covering gynecology or covering vascular, if there's no one available in the middle of the night, the ER may feel like you're the person they're going to call and rightly or wrongly, that may be part of the job. So I would talk to them. Um, and figure out what exactly their expectations are in addition to what are the expectations of the hospital and hospital administration? What are the expectations of the other physicians there? Because that's going to kind of shape what your experience is like. Dylan, can you speak to starting an ACS service a little bit? 
Sure. So coming from places that were very well established and worked in a lot of very protocolized ways, I was surprised as to how not protocolized a lot of things were when I first got here. And I knew that we didn't take all the EGS when I first started, when I signed for the job, but I didn't I didn't realize that it would only be eight days of the month. And then now that we're growing, you know, it's great. It's, it's exactly what I want. And, but there are definitely growing pains in terms of working out things with, you know, private surgeons and who's taking what call and, you know, figuring out with the elective, are there things that we can refer to the elective surgeons in terms of developing protocols, you know, having to get all of the stakeholders on board with everything. One thing we are really working hard on is DVT prophylaxis, you know, which is a a big struggle with their surgeons wanting to hold it and things like that. And it's something that I, I didn't have to think about before being at a place with really robust protocols. So taking the ownership to become the chair of the protocol protocol committee and like work on all those things was what I did to kind of try to work on that. How about things that may get referred to subspecialists at a larger institution? Like if you do a Hartman's and someone and they want a colostomy reversal, how does that work at your institution? We would be the ones to reverse them. Yeah. At our institution with the, our very clearly defined EGS service, and then a very clearly defined only elective general surgery service, we, we do have some crossovers, so we do our own ileostomy takedowns, our own, any cholecystostomy tube you put in is yours. So if you put it in, you have to get water out afterwards or manage the, the, the tube uh, just so that you're limiting the, you know, oh, it's easier just to put the cholecystostomy tube in and someone else can deal with it down the road. However, most of the time, if it's a Hartman's, our general surgeons, our colorectal surgeons will reverse that because they'll do it robotically. And we just aren't doing much robotic stuff still. Although one of my new partners is trying to incorporate that. But so we have, it it is a nice, I think that helps a bit to have some, you know, play just because our emergency service is so busy. Trying to find elective time for our surgeons is difficult because our emergency service is so busy. Nick, I'm going to pose this question to you specifically since you are a much smaller group of surgeons being only two and our other guests have larger groups. So how did you anticipate or discuss call responsibilities when you were accepting this job? Well, I um, probably didn't do the best job of that early on. I came from a big group. So I just kind of assumed that when you weren't on call, the hospital would make sure there were arrangements. And and that's not necessarily always true in, in small environments. Uh, we've since shifted my practice more towards an acute care model where I have a partner. So that's kind of taking care of that. But if you go work in a traditional call model in a rural area, there may not be an expectation that the on-call surgeon, when it's not your night, is going to cover your patients. So you need to just be aware of the potential lifestyle implications for that and be very upfront with the hospital and, and demand to know what exactly is going to be the agreement. Are, are you going to be essentially uh, responsible for this, your cohort of patients every day, which something you may be okay with, but that may not be compatible with your family or, or your other obligations. So you just really need to figure out what that model is going to be early on and, and kind of hold the hospital administration to it. The other thing to be aware of is when you're in a big group and somebody gets sick or goes on leave, it's not that big of a deal. But if you're in a rural area, the loss of one physician can have huge implications. So there might have to really um, 
talk to the hospital up front, like what's the backup plan? What is going to happen if somebody gets sick? If somebody has an emergency, what is going to happen to the whole health system? Because that can have huge issues. And obviously, if you're the only trained surgeon available, you're going to have to step up and take care of that. So being up front and demanding the hospital answer those tough questions early in the process, I think is important. And how did you approach administration to transition to an acute care model from a general surgery practice model? Well, thankfully, we had a, a CMO who came from the ER, so he was well aware of um, issues regarding call and coverage, and uh, he had actually had an application come across his desk and said, hey, I heard about this thing called acute care. What do, what do you think of that? And, and I said, oh, my God, I love it. And uh, we kind of ran with that. But it may not be something that your hospital is familiar with if, if no one's ever talked about that before. I know everyone in the modern training era is probably used to that, you know, either emergency surgery, acute care, whatever you want to call it. I think everyone trains in that environment now, but if you go out to an area where everyone did residency 20, 30, 40 years ago, they may have no idea there's even an option. So they may be very receptive to it, your hospital administration, they may not be, but you just kind of have to tease that out early. And the other thing is just be aware there's a lot of general surgery jobs. There's a lot of rural surgery jobs. So, you know, if you have a little flexibility and where you're going to go, you can find the job that's going to fit you rather than trying to force yourself to fit a certain job, if that makes sense. Now, you had a few years in um, academic practice before the job you currently have. Do you think you would have been prepared from your general surgery training to accept this job directly out of training? Yes and no. I, I did residency with a pretty high volume, high volume program. We did not have a lot of fellows. So I, I feel like I was fairly well prepared, but I mean, let's be honest, whether, no matter where you go into practice, the first few years, you're going to be overwhelmed and need partners. So jumping straight into a rural job right out of the training is a little bit uh, risky. I would say if you're going to do that, I would probably try to get a model where you're going to have a, at least a few partners and not totally independent. Um, if you feel comfortable and, you know, talk to all your mentors and your attendings and just get them to honestly tell you, are you ready or not? And if they say you are, that's fine. Just, you know, the nice thing is now, like I talked about earlier, we have YouTube, we have cell phones. You can always call somebody you worked with before for some advice. And the other thing is always just kind of fall back on your damage control principles and don't be ashamed to leave drains and, and get out of the OR and transfer the patient to a bigger hospital, that kind of stuff. But it's something you're going to have to have a really hard conversation with yourself and your attendings, whether or not you're ready or whether you'd be better doing part of a big group in like an urban environment for a few years first. It's, it's a tough decision. For our listeners that are still in residency or training and considering a career in a rural facility, what advice do you have for them as they proceed? If you're planning on going into rural surgery, I think the benefits are really great. I think the even, even in my situation where it is much more of a referral area, the wide breadth of things I get to do and people I get to take care of is wonderful. And I've, you know, we've had, even though it's a huge uh, area that I serve. I've had quite a few patients that we've had come in that I've taken out their sister's gallbladder or their loved one had a bowel obstruction and their neighbor told them that, you know, our group was great. And I think rural surgery, you do get a lot more of that, of the community feeling. I think really making sure in your training that you work to become as comfortable in doing things as differently as you need to is important because I think you will encounter times when you don't have that tool that you were used to or that specific, you know, instrument that you liked do using in residency. And so being able to be flexible and asking for help is really important. 
and know who you can reach out to from your training and your partners and all those different things is really important. Somebody told me in residency, you know, that I would have no idea what I would want once I graduated from fellowship, you know, when I was like a third year resident and I was certain what I would want. And if somebody told me when I was a third year resident that I would be working in a, in rural Tennessee, (laughs) I would call you a liar for sure. I can tell you now, like, it's just, it's super rewarding. I absolutely love what I do. I love the variety and I love the feeling of responsibility for, you know, my patients and the community as well. And the ability to grow something, you know, it's, it's a different feeling than working in a place that can do really amazing things and has all these amazing capabilities and, and having been at a place like that. And that was really, that felt great to be able to save patients that never could have been saved and they, you know, do amazing work, but um, it's a different type of rewarding and benefit and good feeling to, to build something. And that is, that's what I have really, really loved about working in a rural environment. I guess my only advice is, is go for it. Um, with the caveat being, if this is your first job right out of training, you might need to have an honest uh, assessment and see if you're really ready to kind of be out there on your own. Maybe take a job for a little while where you have a little more support and a little, a few more partners before you kind of go deep, deep rural, but otherwise it's a great (laughs) job. We have really good tools now. Everyone kind of laughs when I say YouTube, but I mean, the Sage's videos on there are amazing. You can look at those. You can review those. You have your cell phone now. You can call your old professor from the OR and I'm sure they'll be willing to answer your phone call. So just use your resources and, and realize that if you had a, a solid residency, you're probably ready. But it's probably also worth getting your feet let, wet a little bit with some partners and, and maybe a little bit more support before you kind of go totally on your own. We also, I think one of the other things, if there are younger you know, medical students or people looking to apply for residency, there are some rural residency programs that help, you know, broaden your experience. So we actually are the rural surgery site for the University of Minnesota and our residents, we have two at a time that spend their fourth and fifth year in Northern Minnesota with us. And they rotate with general surgery, emergency surgery, but then also orthopedics, OB, urology, and spend a lot of time out at more rural communities. And I think if that's something that medical students are interested in doing rural surgery, I think those are really unique opportunities to have a more broad scope as a rural surgeon. I, I mean, our, our graduates are able to plate broken wrists, you know, do cystos, deliver babies. And I think, you know, if you really want to be a true rural surgeon in, you know, middle of nowhere where you're the one and only, I think that that can be a good addition to your armamentum. That's a really good point. We yeah. have a rural track at WU too. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a lot of them. They're all great. <laughs> <laughs> What time is it in Guam? Uh, oh, it's uh, 6 a.m. <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh man, oh. we appreciate your time so much. Yeah, Thank you. My time before the toddlers wake up, so it's actually nice I to see, be awake. I feel like being in my house, just like relaxing the afternoon. Well, in closing, thank you all for your time. This has been really an awesome experience, and I'm sure that all of our listeners have learned something. And as a plug to all of our other productions, I encourage everyone to take a look at the East website. We have lots of resources in addition to some other trauma casts and career casts. Our sister production. 
And as another plug, I encourage you to listen to the first two of our three-part series about rural trauma, and I look forward to the release of the final installment of the series, which will highlight the Rural Trauma Toolkit later this summer. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Sure. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer, and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the east.